Last week I gave you a little warning when the passage that we were studying starts off with, this is an evil generation. I'm not going to give you such a warning this morning. And there's a reason for that, and that's because Christ didn't give much of a warning either. We come to our text and we find that Christ, having dealt with the issues that were involved surrounding the casting out of the demon from the mute man, or the mute demon from the man, he is now invited for now at least the second time for sure in the Gospel of Luke to a Pharisee's house for a meal. And again, the opportunity arises for the religious community to engage Jesus. And we find that, like so many times before, their first impression is negative. Over something that was probably more important than we understand to the Pharisaical community. And that is the washing of hands before you eat. And in fact, uh, Paul goes on to describe how much they're into washing and that this is a, a very particular part of their um, uh, of their practice of Judaism is ceremonial washings that they would have consistently throughout the day. Um, and we picked up a lot of that in our cultural understanding as well. Of course, we replaced washing with sanitizing now. We don't wash anymore. We have to sanitize because washing isn't sufficient. Um, and I often wonder how any of us survived. I don't know how I live to this day because I never sanitized as a kid. I also never wore a seatbelt. But and here, but we 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 survived somehow. I don't know how we possibly got past our infancy without sanitizer. But uh, that influence is from our Judeo background of this of this washing. And Christ is going to address not the washing itself, for that wasn't the issue. The issue was the attitude of approaching it, of elevating these man-made habits, as religious as they are, that's all they were, and displacing, and that is the issue, the displacing of true religion by man-made Concepts, ideas, and principles. And we're going to look at this, and it's going to be frightening because of the setting and the manner in which it is taken up. If we were to investigate this for a little bit, we would conclude that Jesus was one of the rudest guests that has ever been invited to dinner. He is going to take his hosts and his, the friends of his host and rip them to shreds over the meal, and even before the meal begins. Unless you think that this is unusual, I want to share with you that if you've read significantly at all in Scripture, you will find men of God not just insulting people in awkward settings, but indeed infuriating them by their willingness, their courage, their boldness to speak the truth no matter what. Jesus' predecessor, John the Baptist, lost his head. 
because he was willing to speak the truth about the sin that the leadership, the political leadership of Israel was engaged in. And very few were willing to stand in his way because he also pointed out the sin of the spiritual leaders, of the religious leadership of Israel. And if we go back into it, we're going to discover, as Christ talks about in this conversation, that he's not alone. That all the prophets of God, with one or two very small exceptions, and those generally among Gentiles, did not gain the favor of the people to whom they ministered, but rather the disfavor of the people they ministered to. And we have come a long ways now from that. We've come to the point that we don't want to hear that kind of preaching. We don't want to hear the word of the Lord that might make us angry, that might make us uncomfortable, that might make us guilty. And so in many respects, we sit here today in this room more like Pharisees and lawyers and participate in their activity then perhaps we're more so than we're perhaps willing to recognize. And so when we look at this, let's not put in our mind as we get into this message that this is for those people out there or those people in that church or that person up there in that seat in this church. But let's make sure that we're going to carefully evaluate our own hearts, our own lives, our own attitudes, our own priorities this morning as we investigate Christ's conversation with the Pharisees and lawyers. Before we do so, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us and for this chance to look into your word. And Lord, I pray that your spirit might be at work in our midst this morning. We thank you for your word before us, for the truth that it proclaims to us. Lord, we pray that we might be of a different ilk than the Pharisees and lawyers here, but that we might be receptive to your instruction. Even that instruction involves conviction, correction, rebuke. Lord, help us to not only be receptive to it, but responsive to it this morning that we might find ourselves engaged in true religion, a right walk with you, not just one day a week, not just a few hours a week, but every day and every waking hour, that we might be following after you. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you invite this gentleman to your meal. You're one of the wealthy in the community. You're in a high position. You are highly regarded by the community as well because you fulfill an important role there. Uh, you are the one that most people in the past have gone to to answer issues regarding religious practice. Your friends, your acquaintances, your inner circle are the ones people will go to to, to find out um, what the law teaches and, and how to best keep that law. And when there are tricky issues that come up in your community, you're the one, you and your inner circle of friends are the ones that everyone goes to to find out the answer of how to resolve those issues. And along comes this carpenter's son named Jesus 
with extraordinary power, with unbelievable popularity among the masses, and all of your status in the community is brought into jeopardy. You have a couple of options, and one of them is to try to bring him into your inner circle, to try to bring him into your influence, and that happens occasionally, and we find people attempting that, and this, I believe, is one of those attempts. Uh, the, the indication is at the beginning of this event that uh, there was a, a formal but still cordial relationship with this group of Pharisees. Now, as you recall, we are traveling around Israel. We're traveling from the Sea of Galilee region of Capernaum and that area, which is to the north. north in fact, Capernaum is the north edge of the Sea of Galilee. So we're all the way north of Sea of Galilee. And we're traveling down towards Jerusalem. We're getting near to Jerusalem. So we're encountering new groups of Pharisees. These aren't the same Pharisees necessarily at every place we're going to. And so um, they all, Pharisees aren't all the same. Okay. Uh, just like all Baptists aren't the same and, and uh, things along that line. Uh, and so uh, we know of some Pharisees that were very honest in trying to evaluate Christ's ministry. We have Nicodemus in John chapter 3, who's a Pharisee who comes to Jesus and wants to know. You know, um, I not, can't do this in the public, but here I am in private, and I really do want to know the truth. And so uh, we, we know that there are varying qualities among the Pharisees. And uh, so here's one that every indication is, is that he's giving Jesus half a chance. Invites him to his home, wants to have this opportunity to relate with him and to uh, have this personal opportunity with his inner circle to engage Christ and his disciples. Well, Christ comes in, sits down to eat, and sometimes I think he does these kinds of things on purpose just to stir the coals a little bit, to get down to the issues of heart. And he walks in, sits down, starts eating. And every Pharisee, of course, is over there at the line of the bowl and trying to get their ceremonial washing in before they go over there to eat. And Christ just sits down, and he's ready to go, and he sits down to eat. And the Pharisee, of course, is shocked. He's dismayed. And the word there is marveled. He's like, what is this? You're a religious leader of Israel. You know the rules. When you come in before you eat, you have to wash. It says he marveled that you didn't wash before dinner. And so the Lord, it says, said to him, had some things to say to him. And so sitting around this man's dinner table, he takes the dishes and says, you're very interested in the outside of the dishes, that they're very clean. You're very interested about these externals, about these rules that you've man-made, created rules on the outside. And there are, there's some value there. Christ is not discounting the value of the clean external vessel. Alright? He's not discounting that. He's not saying here anywhere in this passage that you ought to not take care of your physical body and its presentation. That we should walk around uh, filthy and smelly and, and grungy and disgusting. Um, that is not the teaching of this passage. What he's saying is you're so concerned with the exteriors and you are so disinterested in what's going on inside. And so I've come in here and sat down with the purpose of demonstrating to you just how caught up you are in these externals, in the outward evidences of your religion. 
but you create a vacuum. Because you have become so interested in these externals, you have neglected what's going on inside. It says, in your, in your inward part, you're full of greed and wickedness. That this is the condition in the inside that you are full of sin inside. And he describes them as foolish ones. Now remember, this is his host and his best buddies who were the leaders of their community. It'd be uh, comparable for us to um, be invited by the mayor and city council um, to uh, a formal dinner down at um, the Hyatt. Uh, is that a good place? I don't know. But uh, banquet hall, and they prepare a great banquet for us, and we show up and just start ripping them to shreds for all the decisions they're doing and the activity they're engaged in. And so Christ is already engaging them before the meal's even been served. He's already caught them. He's already done one simple act to bring out, to draw out from them what their priorities are. What are their priorities? We're all about the external show. And Christ uses that to reveal the, the sin that is really on the inside. And so he calls them foolish ones. You know, yes, God did make the, our physical bodies, but he also made us spiritual beings. And for that cause, we must not only be somewhat interested in the physical exterior aspect of life, but we must pay attention to our spiritual selves. There are, we are something inside. This body is not all that we are. We are not simply animal. We are more than that. And so there's more than just physicality to defining who you are. And so if I want to describe someone, uh, and someone says, well, I don't know that person very well. Can you describe them? Um, think about it. How are you going to describe them? You're going to describe their physical form. Isn't that interesting? Because they'll say, well, that's how our senses engage people. But what if you describe them as, well, they, you know, they're always smiling. They're real upbeat. They, they, when they pick him out from that, in our society, you can almost do that anymore. Oh, I've walked around and there's a lot of somberness and, uh, and then the other extreme of silliness. Are we just physical beings or is there more to us? That's the real question here that Christ wants them to think about. Because they have, they have boiled religion down to, and they can do it via the law. They really can. Um, because if you take a, a little bit of a twisted view of the law, you can come to the point of thinking, if I fulfill all these physical things, that I will be acceptable to God. And that's what the Pharisees have become guilty of. Their view towards the law was externalized. In other words, it was all about the activity of the body. And they looked at the physical self, and they said, if I could physically fulfill the mandates of God's Word, then I will be acceptable to God. And that's how they conceived of it. And that's not very far off from where a lot of people are today. And so Christ here is, is giving us a great definition of what we are. You are more than just your body. Aren't you glad? I mean, when you think about how weak these bodies really are, how susceptible they are 
um, to uh, injury, to death, to uh, misery, to suffering. Um, it's glad, you should be glad, it should be rejoicing for you to know that you are more than just a body. So Christ says there's something more to you. There's something on the inside that you ought to be concerned about, that ought to be uh, on your mind, and in fact, it should be the forefront of your thinking. That is, the physical needs, your bodily needs, should not be the priority. They should be of lesser concern. The greater concern, the highest priority, should be who you are internally. Who are you spiritually? What are you? What's going on inside? And I'm not referring to the organs inside your, you know, your little heart and your your digestive system and your pulmonary system. I'm not referring to that. But who you are outside of your, just your physical being. You cannot boil God's Word down to if you do these external activities, it equals a right relationship with God. And we've been guilty of that. How have we been guilty of that, Pastor? Well, we come to people and say, well, if you want to become a Christian, you're in a right relationship with God, what do you need to do? Well, you pray this certain prayer. And here's the specific words. I've written them down for you because, you know, nobody knows how to pray except for us. So here's the words. You pray these words in this order and shazam, you have a right relationship with God. Wrong. Do you see how physical that is? Is that what we're called upon to do? Do you find that anywhere in the New Testament? Anywhere. Well, you have to pray this prayer. I don't find anywhere where it's said to pray a prayer. What I heard was, repent of your sin, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. That's what I hear. I don't see, pray this prayer. That's a very handy external thing that has no impact on the internal being. Repeat after me. Frankly, that's pharisaical. Now, I grew up with that training that you take a little card with you and it has the sinner's prayer on it. And so when you share Christ with somebody, you hand them a little card and say, here, pray this little prayer. And I got to tell you, that's a perfect little thing for a Pharisee to do. Nice little external activity that doesn't demand anything on the inside. And then they go off and we give them the little prayer, little card so they can remember what they prayed. Um, and because, uh, you know, if you don't pray it in this certain way, it probably doesn't really work. And we got this little hocus pocus thing with the little verbiage down that it's magic. It's like a magic formula. Um, and we've missed the whole boat. The words that they speak as they come to God are not the critical issue. The critical issue is where is their heart in the process? Where is their mind? Where, where, where is the, the guiltness that they stand before God and realize I'm a horrible sinner and I deserve hell and I'm in deep trouble, God, and I need your help because nothing on this earth can help me. I can't help myself. Oh, God, help me. Simplest prayer, help. To demonstrate a heart that recognizes their sin and recognizes that there's only one source of deliverance, one place of help, and that is God Himself. And so there needs to be repentance, a sorrow, godly sorrow over our sinful state, and then a, a faith statement, a, a, a 
conviction about belief. Yes, the Bible says you need to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. But you notice it doesn't follow that. Confess with your mouth these words. Isn't that great? It just says confess with your mouth. Jesus is Lord. Confess with your mouth. However you need to do that, however it is expression of your heart and your and your and the real condition of what's going on inside of you you need to confess with your mouth and it's not just jesus is lord okay well you're if you believe that you just said those three words you're all set there is so much more and christ here says our concern needs to be on what's going on inside and my greatest fear is that in our churches today all we're doing is washing the outside of our dishes we're scrubbing the outside of our dishes. What does that mean? It means that we come to church and portray ourselves as being very righteous or self-righteous, whichever one you want to pick, it doesn't matter. Um, we're very uh, holy and we, we are going to walk with God and we want to say the right words the right way and, and we got to say amen to the right places, which in this church apparently is no place. Um, we say, <laughs> just threw that in there for you. That was extra for free. Okay? We... Um, we got to make sure we, we fulfill all these. But then when we go home, or we go to work, or we go to school, the inside starts to show. Because you see, church wasn't what was inside. That's the outside washing the cup off. And then... We're doing essentially what the Pharisees were doing. What was inside of them? Greed and wickedness. What's the motivating force behind what you do all week long? Is it to serve the Lord with gladness? And yes, I like to wake up my family when they're sleeping on Sunday, on Saturday morning with a, a particular song. And, um, but it's actually not just that song. It's actually about the fifth one that's my favorite. Sixth one maybe. Um, but I always start at the beginning and get there. Um, is that our goal every day? Or is our objective more comparable to the Pharisees of greed and wickedness? What can I get away with today? How much can I make today? How much farther ahead can I get today with the least amount of work? And God calls us foolish ones. See, we need to be concerned about what's on the inside that God's created, because for God's created us more than just bodies. We are in His image. We are image bearers. Um, there's an aspect of God that is in man that is not in the rest of creation. You are different. Okay, and so this is why the evolutionary teaching that is so ingrained into our society today is so heinous, so, so, so harmful, so dangerous, is because it tells you that you are nothing more than a sophisticated animal. And our young people are believing it and they're acting like it. And God says, no, you are more than that. I made you different than the animals. I put in you something that isn't in the rest of creation, my image, parts of, of, of what I am, what, what I am, not who I am necessarily, but what I am. And so we have within us these godly character qualities and these godly aspects of, of what we are. And Christ refers to them as what's on the inside that God made particular for you. That makes you a human different than an animal. 
And young people that, and old people alike, if you're buying into the evolutionary junk that's out there, I want you to know it's shortchanging you. You're getting ripped off because it's telling you you're nothing but a complicated animal. And if that's the case, we might as well start hurting you up, fleecing you. What's the difference? What's the difference? Might as well put you on the menu. You're just an animal. God says there's something on the inside and it should be your concern there. It should be something you're thinking on, something you're focusing on. It should be a priority in your life that says what I am needs to be addressed and not just what I do. What I am needs to be corrected. It's wrong and it needs to be made into what God wants it to be and intended it to be. And so, he talks about giving alms. And verse 41 is a very difficult verse. It's, it's uh, to translate. And so, I'm going to give you a little bit of alternative here. Um, to verse 41, I hope that doesn't shake you up too much. We all know that English, the Bible wasn't written in English, right? You knew that? How many of you knew that? Okay, I'm glad to see that. The Bible was not written in English not in 1611 English, and not in eight, none of it, okay? Um, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic are the three languages written in. Um, and so we're translating. And translation work is, is of God, and it's good, but it's, it's uh, something we can always address. And so we look at this and we say, we give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. And uh, we need to think of this... Uh, that the, what's translated such things as you have also refers to such things as you are on the inside. And so he's still keeping this theme of giving alms of what's on the inside. Giving alms of what you are, the inner part that has been created. He's still carrying the same theme as the sentence before. He's not just introducing something totally different. Well, if you give alms, then everything's right on the outside. There's still this contrast between your inside and outside. You're worried about your outward giving. And so you're worried about counting it out and, you know, well, God says to tithe, that's 10%. Let's see, I made 1740, so that means, a, what do I do with that extra four-tenths of a cent? You know, you know, you're counting your tithe to the penny kind of thing. And, and Christ says, you know, that I'm not even going to address that. That's an issue. That's a problem. But it has a root, and that root is inside. And if you would think about giving from your inside, from what you have on the inside, what you are in addition to your body, if you'll care for that, if you'll give out of that from what you are, then everything else is going to be corrected. Everything else is going to be cleansed. Everything can be Worked out from there. The exterior activity that should characterize the Christian life will naturally happen if you are careful with the inside. If the inside is right, it will simply come out. It won't have any choice but to do that. And we try to fix people from the outside in, and God says, that's what the Pharisees are about. It doesn't work. And you end up with very pretty tombs. Very, very pretty tombs where it's all white and sparkly on the outside and inside it's just death. 
It's, it's decay. It's destruction. God says, fix what's inside and it will just exude from that person what should be going on in their life. And so if inside we have things, godly things like contentment, and inside we have godly things like humility, and inside we have godly things like modesty, and we have these attitudes inside of us that are right as God puts them right by the Holy Spirit and His Word, then guess what? They are going to be exemplified in your life. You cannot be modest in your heart and immodest with your body. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. But if you're humble in our heart, it's going to come out in our speech, in our actions, in everything we do. False humility is external humility for the purpose of elevating our inside. It's a kind of pride. And so God says that it's not going to work. Outside in will not work. And so we need to give of what's inside to God then the outside will take care of itself over time. It will conform to what we are inside. And so the question comes to what happens inside. And most of you here this morning know what it takes to correct what's inside. And I've already referred to it. The Bible says to repent of our sin, that heart of sin, that bent towards sin that and the sins themselves, and that we... Come and trust in the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross to cleanse us of that, to cleanse us on the inside, that then we can become something of more of what God intended for us. And then in that condition, we can serve Him faithfully in righteousness. And so we're coming into a section of woes. And um, we don't understand this word very much because we don't hear it very much. Um, a woe is a very strong condemnation. It's a statement saying it would be better off dead kind of statement. You'd be better off never to have been born kind of thing. That's how bad it is for you. What's coming down the pike in your life, it would have been better off if you would not been born. But you are born and now this woe stands against you. And that's the the, the power of this word. This is a common word in, in preaching in the Bible. You go in the Old Testament, you'll find it. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, the you nation, woe to that nation. And, uh, of course, Isaiah 6 is the one that should come to your mind almost immediately, where Isaiah goes, woe is me. And that's where you need to get today. Is where Isaiah got to. Where he got to saying, instead of woe is them, and woe is them, and, you know, Oh, you guys are all in trouble. You need to turn the finger and say, Woe is me. I am undone. I'm in deep trouble. Why did Isaiah say that? He condemned everyone else. All the nations around Israel he condemned. In chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. He gets to chapter 6 and now he realizes, Oh boy, I'm in deep trouble. What was the distinguishing factor? He saw God. These guys at this dinner table sat down with God. And instead of repenting, instead of saying, woe is me, they fought him. Instead of responding by faith, believing Jesus, trusting Jesus, listening to Jesus, obeying Jesus, they fought him. Sound familiar? 
It's what most everyone does. Confronted with God, we have two options. We either surrender to Him and say, woe is me, I am undone, and I am a horrible sinner, and I need, to, I need every help God can give me. I need to be cleansed. I need to be forgiven. I need Him. Or we fight Him. We call Him a liar. We condemn Him. We, we, we look at His people and say, oh, they didn't wash. Oh, they, they ate in the field on the Sabbath. Oh, and, they, and we become critical. We start pointing the finger and trying to find fault. There is no fault with God. Remember? God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. There is no fault with God. And so when God says that our innards are wrong, that we are sinners and that we are at odds with Him, you can say, oh, you know, how can... And here's the big thing. Here's where it comes. How can God let bad things happen? To babies. How can you? How can you? How can you? And you are, by the way. You are. How many of you have your own room? One person in a room at night. Okay, you're married. You're one, okay? Two shall be one, okay? So that counts as one. You and your... How many have one person in a room? Bedroom at night. Raise your hand. How can you do that? How can you live with yourself like that? How can you do that? How can you live with that kind of decadence? When there are people that don't have a room at all. You see, we want to point the finger at God, but God is just, and we're going to talk about, and loving, and He has made everything necessary for men to correct what is wrong with their insides. And instead of submitting to that, surrendering to that, we want to accuse Him. And that's exactly what comes here. The Pharisees want to accuse Christ instead of surrendering to His message. And by the end of this discussion, remember, so we have the accusation you didn't wash, there's something wrong with you on the outside. By the end of the thing, verses 53 and 54, it says that they assailed him vehemently. They cross-examined him about many things. They were waiting, lying in wait for him, and they were wanting to catch him and something might say that they could accuse him. You see, God says that we're sinners, and, and we don't want to admit that, so we point the finger and say, God, you know, you're just not fair. You're right, he's not fair. He should have killed you a long time ago. He should have killed me. He should have destroyed the world and been done with it right after Adam sinned. But he didn't. That's what would have been fair. You want what's fair from God? You're going to hell. That is fair because you deserve it. You've earned it. I'm so glad God isn't fair. Because He's unfair, I have life. Because he's unfair, I get to be here and hear God's word preached. Because God is unfair, I can receive eternal life and forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. Because God is unfair. And so when you hear these woe to you and woe to you throughout the rest of chapter 11, think this is what you deserve if God weren't loving, gracious, and merciful. 
bad things that happen to men are not God's fault. They are what we created for ourselves by our own sin. When we start blaming God for anything, anything that is a result of sin, we are following in the footsteps of the Pharisees and lawyers of this passage. Let's look at the woes very quickly. My time is fleeting. I might have to get back to this next week. Woe to you Pharisees. Here we go. What have they done? They tied the mint, the rue, and all manner of herbs and passed by justice and the love of God. They're worried about making sure they count out to the penny what they're giving so that they make sure that they separate it all out, but then they let justice fall by the wayside. They let widows and orphans be abused and manipulated. They are they just don't care about the poor. In fact, they're abusing the poor and they're taking uh, interest off the poor. They're making money off the poor. Um, all the while, they're trying to sit there and carefully count their tithes out to the very grain of, of, uh, of uh, leaf of mint, to the very grain of, of, of uh, their wheat. And so he says, you've passed by justice and you've passed by the love of God. You've ignored these things from the inside. These things are much more concern to God. Much more concern. Is, is there justice in your midst? Is the love of God demonstrated? And I gotta tell you, out of the love, if, when there's love and there's justice, we don't have to count. In fact, what real love does is it doesn't take, keep count at all. I don't keep count. I cannot, for the life of me, tell you how much my children cost me. I haven't kept count. Have any of you? Any of you keeping accounts on that? You know, okay, you were born this year, that cost me this much, and I'm going to start keeping track from now on of all the food and all the clothing and all the utilities and all the, you know, I'm going to give you a bill when you turn 18. Here's how much it costs. I, I don't know any parents that are keeping count. You don't keep count because you love them. When the love of God is in our life, because Christ has cleansed us from our sin, and now we can love like God loves, you don't count. You don't. You just give because it needs to be given. Someone asked me about our love offering that we gave for Pastor Reddy, and... Um, you guys really love him, apparently. The love of God is in you with regard to the ministry of Krupa Kendra and Pastor Ruddy. And the saddest thing is, is that our special offering was more than all the other churches combined gave him. One offering. We're not a big church, are we? You see, the love of God doesn't count. It gives. These guys are over there counting. You know, and if you're sitting there counting off to figure out what the minimum is you need to give to God, then the love of God isn't in you. Because the love of God and justice doesn't count. It says, my needs are met. I've taken care of that. Now, what more can I do? Because this needs to be taken care of. This needs to be addressed. My love needs to be expressed there. And I'm not going to count. And this is what is meant when the Bible says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing when it comes to giving. You're not 
keeping those kinds of records. And so he says, let's deal with the inside. Where's justice? Where's the love of God inside of you? And you won't have to worry about this counting stuff. You'll simply give what you are capable of giving and you'll praise God for it and it will be a joy to you and not a burden. He goes on and says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Don't we all love to be popular? So he's just addressed their greed. And greed demonstrates the absence of the love of God because you're loving money. That's what greed is. Okay, When you're so busy counting that you can't enjoy the giving, stop giving. Did, did you hear a preacher say that? If you're, if you're so miserable counting carefully, stop giving. It should just be a joy to just say, well, what do we got? Let's do it. Give what we can. And have joy in doing it. Well, now we come to this idea of being exalted among men. And this is pride. I want to be exalted among men. And yes, we have this in our Christian circles too. Um, and I uh, always am amused, sadly amused, by people who not only want to rehearse in their testimony um, that they got saved and that they got baptized, but they like to tell you under whose ministry they got saved and baptized. Um, does it really matter, you know, if this big-name national person baptized you or some lunkhead pastor of a little church baptized you? Does it really matter who pushed you under the water? To some people it does. Why? Priorities are wrong. They're more like Pharisees. It doesn't matter. It matters what's in the heart, not who is doing the act. And uh, I had this opportunity when we were in Israel to conduct a baptism in the Jordan River. Isn't that cool? All these people signed up to be baptized in the Jordan River. And so I said, well, before I do this, I have a responsibility to teach what this is. When I was done teaching, over half of them took their name off the list. You know why? Because they realized that there's nothing special about being baptized in the Jordan than being baptized, at, that you've already been baptized at your home. Why tarnish that? That's your testimony. And so they're saying, yeah, I don't need to be baptized. I've been baptized. Why do I need to do it again over here? Am I getting saved over again? Am I, you know, Christ need to be crucified again for me? No, I don't need any of that. I can be content with that. And so when we look at these guys that were interested in, in this public display and having everyone know them and speak to them and, and uh, to have the best seats in the house and, and Christ says, this is... Pride. This is evidence of something wrong inside. You see, true humility comes in and esteems everyone else better and says, I don't blame anybody for not talking to me. Maybe I should be more concerned about why I didn't talk to anyone else. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you're like graves which are not seen. And the men who walk over them are not aware of them. You're dead and you don't even know it and nobody else cares. How many of you realize you've been walking over graves lately? 
I, I fascinated every time they go out and they want to build this new structure and they're going to build this, dig the foundations and they come across bones. What are we going to do now? Oh, this is an ancient burial ground. Now what? Can't build anything here. Or we're going to move all the bones, which is what they do in most cultures. They will just pick up the bones and we're going to move them somewhere else. What does that mean? That means that he'll have been walking over those bones all those years and nobody knew it. They've been planting corn on it. They've been doing whatever they've been doing on that land on top of those bones and never knew it. And the, Jesus Christ says, you're just like that. You think you're something and you're nothing. You're so dead. You're so small in the working of God. You're so insignificant in what you have, have done for the kingdom of God that you're like dead men who are buried and people walk over you and don't even know you're there. Because you're doing nothing for the kingdom of God. In fact, what you're doing is destroying it, not working for it. This is what hypocrites are. They're doing nothing for the kingdom of God. All their outward achievements that they might point to, all their self-righteousness that they might proclaim is all nothing. It is, you're in a grave and nobody knows you're there because you're doing nothing substantial for the kingdom of heaven. Until your inside is right with God, until your spirit is right with Him, nothing on the outside is doing any benefit to the kingdom of heaven. None of it. So far he's picked on scribes and Pharisees and one of the lawyers, one of the inner circle says, you know, it's okay for you to pick on them, but it's kind of, we kind of feel like you're, you know, we're part of that group too. You know, do you mean to talk that way to me too? I can understand that about those people. You know, you're probably talking about Methodists or something, but are, do you really mean Baptists? <laughs> yeah. Now we get into some more woes. Woe to you. You want to be included, feeling left out. Um, verse 46, Well, do you also, lawyers? You load men down burdens too hard to bear. You yourselves not touch the burdens with one finger. You build the tombs of the prophets and your fathers killed them. Uh, it says, by building these tombs, you are not honoring the prophets. You're honoring your fathers who killed the prophets. And I've been there and they've built the tombs. The tombs are still there. There you can go outside Jerusalem and you still find tombs to prophets killed by the very forefathers of the men who built the tombs. They murdered them. And you think you're something because you built them a sepulcher, a big fancy, you know, here's a little thing so we can honor this prophet. You killed them rather than listen to his message. You're weighing people down with Burdens, and because you're adding to the law of God, and you're adding to the law of God, and you're adding to the law of God, and yet you, in your knowledge of the law of God, find little loopholes so you can get out of it. Sounds just like politicians, don't they? Make it harder and harder and harder for the people all the while. There's little legalese in there that make it easier and easier and easier for them. This is your health care law, but it doesn't apply to us. Isn't that great? Thank you very much. That's exactly nothing new under the sun, right? Ecclesiastes says exactly what was going on then. So don't think these guys invented it in Washington these days. It's been going on for thousands of years. 
we're going to load all of you down with all this law that God doesn't require. And meanwhile, because of our wicked hearts, we're going to figure out ways we don't have to keep any of the law. And that's what they were doing. And Christ condemns them. And says, not only that, but you are guilty of all the blood of all the prophets this generation is. All the way back to Abel. All the way through to Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. It's going to be required of you. And in last woe, verse 52, woe to you if you've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering you hindered. The final woe upon this group of people is that they robbed the world of God's truth. They robbed the world of God's truth. They thought they were preserving it and sanctifying it. And in the course of doing that, they really robbed people of it. You see what they did, and this is very common today, and it's been common for 2,000 years. This is what they were saying. You people, you ordinary, regular people, can't understand this book. So, only we can study it, and we'll let you know on your dumb level what it means. That's what they were doing with the Old Testament. And they were robbing people of the key to the knowledge of truth. And if you think this generation is unique in that, they were not. Go back into your Old Testament and find out how many times the law, the prophets, were lost. And the people didn't know they were disobeying it because they had never heard it in their entire lives. Because the Scriptures were lost. Who lost them? Well, it starts off on this level. Well, you can't have a copy you, well, I can't trust you with this. You just can't hold on. No, give me that. I, I've seen how you guys read and you don't read right. You give me that. You too. I know it's a little one, but it's trouble. All right. I'm just picking on the arch lettuce today. <laughs> now, let me tell you what the Bible says. That's how it starts. That's how it starts. And once you take the Bible out of the lay people's hands, and put it into the hands of a few, you have a very dangerous situation. What happens? The few begin to realize, hey, I've got the Bibles. Nobody else knows what they say. What can I do to them? I can, I can pervert it. I can add to it. You better, I can't believe you let me have that. See the trouble? And this is how it starts. We're going to take the Bible out of your hands. Now you're dependent upon me upon a small group of society, and then in that condition, that small group of society, that small group is able to pervert it. And over and over again, if you read through the Old Testament, we're not just, I'm not talking about modern denominations or religions doing this. I'm going all the way back to the Old Testament. See how many times it was lost. And you find them cleaning out the temple, and somebody says, hey, what's these scrolls? I think that's the law. And they open up the... Re- we're not doing any of this stuff. And so they go out and they make pitch a bunch of tents and they start having the Feast of Tabernacles because that's apparently the week that they were cleaning out the temple. Days of Nehemiah. Open it up. Hey, we're not supposed to be married to these Gentiles. Well, we all are. Well, let's clean it up. The scribes were just as guilty in Jesus' day. He says, listen, you've been keeping my word from the people that would benefit from it. And brethren, today, 
Why at the skate park do we give away Bibles for free? Why do we tell kids coming to Word of Life clubs, bring your own Bible? Why do we have Bibles here? Do we have Bibles here? Yeah, we still have Bibles here. (laughs) Because this is the key. I am not the key to heaven. I am not your go-between. I am not your mediator. I am not your savior. I am not the key. No religious no religious leadership is your key. The key is the truth of Jesus Christ described in this book. And by the Holy Spirit's filling and illumination in every one of our lives, we should come to that knowledge. And look what happened. It says, you didn't enter yourselves. By having, they had the law. They were experts in it. They had many, a bunch of it memorized. They were the experts. And it says, you didn't use it right. And you didn't come into a right relation with God through it. And then others who wanted to, you said, uh-uh. You don't understand it. You don't get to have it. Why is translation work so important? Because you need the key to knowledge. You need the key. This book is the key to unlocking who Jesus Christ is, what you are. It's not your biology textbook. It's the Scriptures. It's going to unlock it and realize, hey, I'm more than just an animal. I'm more than just a bunch of amino acids. I'm more than that. God made me more. But sin destroyed that. And God says, I can restore that through the blood of Jesus Christ. And all I need to do is trust in Him. So I can... uh, That's the solution. And I can see what I am. I can see what happened to us that made us what we are today. And I can see what God wants me to be. And I can attain that all by a knowledge of the truth. And shame on anyone that wants to take this out and say, you don't get it because you're not smart enough. Or you have to learn Latin to read it, or any other language, or 1611 English. This is the way to enter in. We invite you into God's Word every Sunday because this is the key. And it would have been better for those lawyers not to ever have been born than to take the key of knowledge away from God's people, from the world. Well, as you can imagine, if you say these kinds of things over the dinner table of your hosts, you're not going to be welcomed back. There have been plenty of prophets that have never been welcomed back to their towns. Just like there's been pastors not welcomed back in the pulpits. We do it differently, though, in our culture. We don't remove the guy from the pulpit. We don't take him out and stone him to death. We just run away to find somebody tells me what I want to hear instead of the truth. You see, if Jesus were here, we would be at some other church this morning. If Jesus were the preacher this morning, we would be somewhere else. Because I don't think we could handle this. For him to just walk right down row by row and say, when are you going to get rid of this sin out of your life? When are you going to get rid of that sin out of your life? Why are you clinging to that sin? Why are you so filthy on the inside? Why are you here pretending to be clean? That's what he did over dinner. Any of you want to come over today? 
That's what Christ did. He declared these woes over dinner in their house to them. He wasn't worried whether they would come back or whether they would maybe will lose their tithe. Oh, no. He didn't care because the truth is more important. Their eternal condition was more important than whether he was ever going to be invited back or whether they were going to stop giving. Because you know what? (laughs) The love of God doesn't count. The love of God doesn't count. And I'm going to confess something this morning, and this is um, probably going to get off the podcast, but I'm going to confess something this morning to you, and that is I've been counting. I've been counting. You know what that means? According to this, justice and love God is missing in your life. See, it's easy to say, well, why bother? Why bother going through all the work to prepare a message, to bring it, and to do all the work of setting this up on Sunday morning when no one wants to come and hear it? But there were some people that came and heard it and wanted to. And I want to apologize to those people who came and didn't get very good messages because I didn't invest enough because I was counting. You see, whether the audience is a handful of Pharisees sitting around a table or whether it's the multitudes out on the hillside, you see, the love of God moves us to speak the truth in love always. And one thing that I've dealt with the last two weeks particularly out of this passage is I have to love who's here enough to share Christ and His Word fully with all my effort and energy as if the world were here. And so I want to ask your forgiveness for counting. And I'm not going to do that anymore. So if there's just my family here next Sunday, I'm going to preach. And I'll set up just as many chairs. (laughs) But I'm not going to count. Testimony is given many times of that faithful individual who prayed and ministered and witnessed and prayed and ministered and witnessed for decades and had one person come to know Christ. And you say, oh, what a waste. But then we find out who that one person was and they're of the like of Billy Graham or Hudson Taylor, those kinds of men who are the product of one person's lifelong ministry sometimes. And who knows, but there are some like that here. See, the love of God moves us not to count. The justice of God moves us to give all of who we are, no matter who listens. The, just, the, the power of God and the defining of who we are says, I will minister everything. I will give of all that I am inside. And then all things are clean to me. All things are right. They'll be set appropriate. Brethren, I do not, and I pray that you do not want to be worthless in the kingdom of heaven. A dead man buried in a grave that nobody knows about and everybody walks over. Oh, I pray that that's not the testimony of Kirk Westling's ministry. And I pray that's not the testimony of your ministry. Oh, that we would count for something in this life.
to do so, we're going to have to be of a different kind than the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, lawyers. doesn't mean we'll be popular. <laughs> might mean you get hunted. But oh, that we would live lives that would matter. That we would take care of our inner parts. And then let it exude to what is outward. I skipped over one small phrase and I want to leave you with this. In verse 42 at the very end, it says, These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. I'm not proposing here that you walk out of here and don't any longer do any external actions of faith. But rather, I am saying, take care of the inward parts and then carry out those religious activities afresh, purposeful, and glorifying in their nature to God and not yourself. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word. And Lord, we confess before you that it is so easy for us to fall into the trap of thinking like the Pharisees thought. We are so tied to this physical world and to our physical bodies that we neglect our spiritual selves. And Lord, we know that there's great danger there and we pray you might guard us from it. Convict us as you have. Lord, may we respond by faith, not as the Pharisees responded, by attacking you, accusing you, testing you. Lord, these are faithless responses. Guard us from them. Lord, help us to humble ourselves before you. To have that godly sorrow that brings repentance. Lord, help us to be so full of the love of God that we lose count. Indeed, that we don't even bother trying to keep count. But that we minister with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength to your glory. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.